bless you. Thank you. Super kind of you. Thanks, Jeff. Really appreciate that. Uh, it is a privilege for uh, uh, us to be with you. Uh, and always, always a blessing to worship with another Bible-believing. I tell my church this all the time. Another Bible-believing, Bible-preaching, Christ-exalting church. There's just nothing like it. You can come halfway across the country, literally, and, and you're reading off the same book, and you're worshiping the same Lord Jesus Christ, and uh, uh, that's, a, that's just a huge encouragement for us. So just to uh, lift high the name of Jesus, a few minutes there with you is really special. It's also a blessing to stand in for your pastor. Uh, you need to know um, that I think very highly of Jeff, and um, uh, privileged to stand in for him and, and preach the word uh, in his place. He's a partner in ministry, a friend, as he mentioned, a brother in Christ, and so Oh, man, thanks for giving me this opportunity. I uh, really uh, love that. Also, as he mentioned, I bring greetings from our church, Coramdale Bible Church in Davenport, Iowa. Uh, Davenport, Iowa is right on the Mississippi River. Uh, Coramdale, by the way, if you're scratching, you're like, what is that even English? No, it's not. Uh, it's Latin. Coramdale is a Latin phrase that simply means in the presence of God. It was uh, made popular during the time of the Reformation. And uh, it implies that we live in the presence of God, 24-7, 365, under the authority of God, for the glory of God. And so that's our church and Coramdale uh, uh, Bible Church. I'm also here with my wife, Becky, and uh, our youngest daughter, Anna, her boyfriend, uh, Nate. And uh, Becky and I have three girls that you can see behind me here. Our oldest is on the right-hand side, then, of course, Becky, then our middle daughter next to her, and then Anna there on the left, all in the front row. Uh, our oldest uh, daughter is married to the, the man behind her, uh, Dan, and then uh, Julia, our middle daughter, married to the man behind her as well. Uh, they got married uh, like four and a half, three and a half years ago, both of those two, and, and it was two weddings in one year which depleted all of our resources. It's a good thing that Anna was still in college because we told her there was only pizza and pop left over for you. And she didn't think that was very funny. But um, nonetheless, uh, the reservoir has, has begun to refill. So uh, that's all good. Uh, but uh, truth be known, none of those people matter anymore to Becky and I because we have a special one right here. Our first grandchild going to be five months, told us this morning, going to be five months next Sunday, going to be five months old next Sunday. Like our world revolves around him, we FaceTime with him every single day, and uh, what a joy, uh, Charles Robert uh, Devine, middle name after myself, uh, and I told him when he was born, seriously, first day, I got to be in the, in the room, unbelievable. Uh, I don't know how anybody survives that, but nonetheless, I'm holding him, holding him in my arms, and I'm like... C.R. Divine. Doesn't that sound like an author's name? Like, you're going to be an author. You're going to be an author. You're going to write about Jesus. Anyway, so uh, that's our pride and joy uh, for sure. And that's our family. And praise God, they're all walking in the truth. Uh, it's like uh, John, the Apostle John says in Third John, I have no greater joy than to know that my children are walking in the truth. And he was certainly referring to his spiritual children. That uh, definitely applies to our physical ones as well. So love you. So thankful for you. All right, that said, you've turned in your Bibles, hopefully, to Acts chapter, Acts chapter 3. Acts chapter 3. If you remember, or maybe you don't even know, Acts is about the start and the spread of the early church under the influence of the Holy Spirit. That's the, the whole framework of the book's Acts. The, the, the start of the early church and the spread of the early church under the influence of the Holy Spirit of God. And it's an influence 
that compelled them to speak and live for Jesus in that day, just as the Holy Spirit compels us to live and speak for him in this day. Same, same. We're, we're all on the same side of the cross that way. They were just after the cross. We're a long time after the cross, but same side of the cross, same age, same spirit, same God. And what we find here in chapter 3 of Acts is an apostolic version of show and tell. You know what I'm talking about? Do they still do show and tell in school? Like in the early elementary grades, somebody give me a nod, yes or no. Yeah, yes? All right. Show, show and tell. That goes big for me. Uh, Peter and John here, two of the 12 apostles, encounter a crippled beggar, do a miracle, and then talk about it, explain it, show and tell. Uh, like the time when I was in kindergarten, uh, my mom and I were, were late. We were running out the door. I went out the front door first. We lived kind of just outside the village limits of a town of uh, 950, and that included cats and dogs. I ran out the door, and as I'm about ready to step off the, the step, there is a long snake laid right there warming itself in the morning sun. And for a second there, I like teetered on one leg, started shaking a little bit, and then was like, I've, got, I've committed myself, I've got to go. So I just jumped over the snake and then started yelling, you know, cats and dogs and screaming to mom and mom as she was coming out the door. We took pictures of it. We weren't that late to kindergarten. And then that was show and tell. And I told them how big that snake was, how long that snake was, and how brave I was, which was obviously a lie, but it made for a great show and tell. Same same. Only Peter's not the focal point and John's not the focal point, but Jesus is the focal point of this one. So let's work our way through it and let's see what God has for us. Verse 1. Now Peter and John were going up to the temple at the hour of prayer, the ninth hour. That's 3 o'clock. They measured their days from 6 a.m. Actually, 6 p.m. is the start of their day the previous evening. But that's 3 o'clock, one of the set times of prayer each day for the Jews. Only the disciples, Peter and John, would have been praying in Jesus' name, just like he had taught them. But they still went at the designated times. Verse 2, and a man, lame from birth, was being carried, most likely by family or friends, whom they laid daily at the gate of the temple that is called the beautiful gate to ask alms, handouts, of those entering the temple. Now, got a little picture here for, for you, just so you can kind of get it in your mind's eye. The beautiful gate is down here to the lower right. You can see that it's uh, goldish, bronzish. I'll explain it a little bit. But the beautiful gate was the gate that separated the court of the Gentiles out here from the court of the women in here. In other words, it separated the area in which only the Jews could go from the Gentiles where, you know, anybody could be. Beautiful gate right there. And the gate was most likely named such for two reasons. Number one, it was the entrance into the place that was spiritually beautiful because in here in the holiest of holies was where the presence of God dwelt. Beautiful. Beautiful. Second reason it was named that is that, though you can't really see it in this scale of model, it was 75 feet high. This would be about 30 feet high. It was 75 feet high, this gate was. It was 60 feet wide, and it was most likely covered in shiny Corinthian bronze, like the metal in that particular day. It was so beautiful that Josephus, an historian at the time, 
said that it, quote, it far exceeded in value those gates that were plated with silver and set in gold. Beautiful. And so here was the lame beggar strategically placed in the arch of opulence, if you will, asking for scraps. A contrast no doubt intended to place the ultimate guilt trip on those who were passing by. Verse 3. Seeing Peter and John about to go into the temple, he asked to receive alms. And Peter directed his gaze at him, as did John, and said, look at us. I wonder if he was like this. Look at us. I did that with our girls sometimes, only it wasn't that kind. And he fixed his attention on them, expecting to receive something from them. It's quite a leading phrase. But Peter said, I have no silver and gold, but what I do have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, rise up and walk. And he took him by the right hand and raised him up. And immediately his feet and ankles were made strong. And leaping up, leaping up, he stood and began to walk and entered the temple with them, walking and leaping and praising God. I don't know about you, but I can't read that last verse there without breaking into the children's song that we taught our girls along the way. Do you know? If you know it, do not leave me hanging up here, okay? Peter and John went to pray. They met a lame man on the way. He asked for alms and held out his palms, and this is what Peter did say. Silver and gold have I none, but such as I have give I thee in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Rise up and walk. He went walking and leaping and praising God, walking and leaping and praising God in the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth. Rise up and walk. That's it. That's it. That's it. Hey, hey, hey. Parents, future parents, start building your playlist right now, all right? We didn't even know what a playlist was. It wasn't even a word in our day we were raising them. We mentioned, I mentioned I was going to sing this song with Anna, and she's like, I don't remember that song. I'm like, failure, failure. Now you won't read that without thinking of that song. You'll have to look it up. But the point is not a memorable children's song. The point is that Peter did a miracle in the name of Jesus. Don't miss that. In the name of Jesus. As in, by his power, under his authority, and according to his leading. That, that's, that's, that's what it means to pray in the name of Jesus. That's what it means to live in the name of Jesus. That's what it means to do a miracle in the name of Jesus. By his power, under his authority, and according to his leading. Don't let in Jesus' name become an empty expression of your prayers or your speech or your life. Don't let it. Because it's far from empty. It's full of meaning and full of power and full of authority. And don't miss the fact that this kind of miracle is exactly what God-fearing Jews were looking for in that particular day. The prophet Isaiah, Isaiah 35, said that when God comes to save, then the eyes of the blind shall be open. We know from the New Testament, the eyes of our heart. The eyes of the blind shall be open, and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then shall the lame man leap like a deer, and the tongue of the mute sing for joy. You see, not only had Jesus himself done those miracles of opening the eyes of the blinds, literally, and the deaf, and, and raising people up, 
And not only had Jesus done that inaugurating the Messianic age, but here were his disciples doing the same, confirming the Messianic age. That Jesus, the Messiah, the promised one, the anointed one had come. He's here. He's among us. The kingdom of God is at hand. And so no matter how you look at it, from the phrase, in Jesus' name, to the messianic prophecy of healing being fulfilled, the miracle was meant to exalt Jesus. The miracle was meant to exalt Jesus, to lift him up in our minds. Our minds, not just theirs, ours. This is for now. It was meant to elevate him in our heart and soul. It was meant this miracle was to to praise him with our life. Not Peter or some other church leader along the way, but Jesus. It was meant to elevate and exalt Jesus. Jesus first, Jesus last, Jesus always. That's why Peter was so explicit about it. In the name, see it there? In the name of Jesus Christ, rise up and walk. Explicit. It was meant to exalt him. It was meant to magnify Jesus, glorify Jesus. How about you? Do you? Do you? Do you glorify Jesus? When you do something, for instance, in Jesus' name, uh, when you help someone uh, according to his leading, uh, when, when, when you pray for someone, when you give something to someone, money or goods or, or, or serving them or whatever, like, do you name the name or do you keep it quiet, under wraps? Or how about when something miraculous happens to you, out of the ordinary at the very least, or something that's providential, a divine meeting, or whatever it would be, are you explicit and open about giving credit where credit's due? Or are you vague and veiled about it? Are you bold like the healed beggar, overflowing with praise, or bashful and ashamed like most? One of our elders' daughters in our church was in a four-wheeler accident in Colorado two years ago. And they were in the, kind of the mountainous area, of course. And she was thrown headlong over a nearly vertical cliff. And for most of the fall, her dad was right behind her on his four-wheeler, he's now a retired colonel from the army, and he was right behind her on his four-wheeler, and he said that for the vast majority of the fall, she was completely airborne, except for the two or three times that she glanced off the rock and the gravel on the way down, and then landed on these large boulder-type rocks at the bottom. And he showed me a picture. They were these kind of rocks, jagged and so on. And he said, I thought to myself, this is it. This, this, she's, she's dead. But when he finally got down there, and the others who were with him, she was alive. And after being plucked off the mountain by a helicopter, she was taken directly to a hospital in Denver. Whereas you can imagine, they began to run a full battery of tests, and they discovered that other than a mild concussion, she had no internal injuries, no broken bones, and she didn't even need stitches for her cuts and bruises on her body. Like, that's a miracle. 150 feet 
was the cliff. A miracle and cause for praise in and of itself. But so was and so is her dad's response. I never, never forget, he called me and, and when I spoke to him on the phone, he immediately and repeatedly gave God the credit. Naming Jesus explicitly. Explicitly over and over and exalting him. He gave him the credit where credit was due and is due. How about you? When you encounter something miraculous or providential in your life, do you name the name? Do you exalt Jesus? I hope you do. Second, the miracle was meant to get their attention. The miracle was meant to get their attention. Moving a little quicker now, verse 9, and all the people saw him, this previously lame beggar, saw him walking and praising God and recognized him as the one who sat at the beautiful gate of the temple asking for alms. And they were filled with wonder and amazement at what had happened to him. God got their attention. He got their attention. I mean, they couldn't help but see what had happened. The guy was right in front of them. And they paid attention. Don't miss this. They paid attention. God got their attention, and they paid attention. So many times, the Lord gets our attention, but we don't pay attention. Or our, our attention is fleeting, and, and we just kind of lose interest after a while, a short while, oftentimes moments from one moment to the next. God got their attention, and they paid attention. The question is, does God have yours, present tense? Does God have your attention? Does he? Would you honestly say yes in your heart of hearts right now? I mean, have you, are you dialed in to the things that he's doing in your life as we speak each and every day? Are you cognizant? Have you ever thought that the things that happen to you might happen for the sole purpose of getting your attention? You ever thought that? God's that big. He's that almighty. He's that omniscient. All-knowing, all of it. You ever thought that the things that happened to you might be for the sole purpose of getting your attention? The sole purpose of turning your eyes upon Jesus to look full in his wonderful face. That the things of earth might grow strangely dim in the light of his glory and grace. Thank you, hymn writer. You ever wondered whether God might put things in your life for the sole purpose of keeping you from sin or getting you out of it? Relationships, chance encounters, situations, circumstances. Maybe for the sole purpose of spurring you on or changing your direct direction in life. Don't get me wrong, I, I'm, not, I'm not saying that we need to read the spiritual tea leaves and look for things that aren't there. I, I, not at all. I'm not saying that we should infer something that is not implied. I'm saying that we need to wake up to the obvious. We need to clue in to reality in our lives and stop passing things off as random events due to a naturalistic, anti-supernatural worldview and mindset. We've got to stop that. People of God that we are, followers of Jesus Christ that we are. When Becky and I traveled to Missouri back in 2018 for my dad's memorial service, we stayed at a place called Heartland Community. Remember this? 
It's a ministry, this place called Heartland Community. It's a ministry for people who are down and out, sometimes by their own decisions and sometimes by circumstances of, of, of life. And, and when I say it's a ministry, I mean it's a small town, literally so. This is a classic case, baseball aside, if you build it, they will come, all right? Small town ministry, built in the middle of cornfields there in uh, northeast uh, Missouri, complete with a church, a school. If I had time, I would point these out. Complete with a church, a school, let's see here what else, a, a college, a store, a gas station, a restaurant, really good restaurant, farm, a hotel, hotel, and houses, dozens of them, all founded and constructed by a guy named Charles Sharp who was cruising through his middle-aged life, living for himself, and lost everything, went completely bankrupt. And with his full attention, the Lord impressed on Mr. Sharp to not only start living right, but to use his money for kingdom purposes. So as his business and his income recovered, at the age of 69... When most people are sipping tea and eating bonbons and picking up seashells on the seashore, like Charles Sharp started a church and established a ministry. Don't wait for God. Here's what I want you to hear in that. Don't wait for God to bring you to the end of yourself, the bottom of your barrel, to start living for Him and giving your full attention to Him. Don't, don't wait for that. Wake up now. Like, look around and, and get going. Whether that means, you know, following Christ in the first place, or, or growing in Christ, uh, abiding in Christ, whatever it is, wherever you are in all of that, waste no more time. Waste no more. Verse 11, while he clung to Peter and John, you can imagine, all the people, utterly astounded, you can imagine that too, ran together to them in the portico called Solomon's. Solomon's portico, really quick here, is a series of columns that you can see on the outside here. There were some on this side of the temple as well uh, that ran most of the way around it. They were simply uh, there for A, aesthetics, and B, meeting areas. Solomon's portico. Verse 12, and when Peter saw it, that is, the people running toward him, he addressed the people. Men of Israel, why do you wonder at this? Or why do you stare at us as though by our own power or piety we have made him walk? The God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob, the God of our fathers, glorified his servant Jesus. He empowered him to do this. Whom you delivered over and denied in the presence of Pilate when he had decided to release him. Referring to the death and crucifixion of Jesus. The events surrounding it. Not too long ago. Verse 14. But you denied the holy and righteous one. And asked for a murderer to be granted to you. And you killed the author of life. Talk about saying it like it is. You killed the author of life. Whom God raised from the dead. The very thing that we've sung about. To this we are witnesses. Now check this out. And his name, the name of Jesus, by faith 
he now clarifies that just to make sure. By faith in his name, he has made this man strong whom you see and know. And the faith that is through Jesus, explicit again, has given the man this perfect health in the presence of you all. The miracle was meant to exalt Jesus, get their attention, and third, encourage faith in Jesus. Encourage faith in Jesus. Faith as in belief and trust. It's faith. It's not some, it's some miracle, uh, mystical sort of thing, faith. It's belief and trust. In this case, in the biblical sense, Belief and trust in the Son of God, God in the flesh. That's what that phrase, Son of God, means. God in the flesh. Which rules out the nebulous kind of faith that you know you hear about these days. Well, I have faith, and you have faith, and my faith got me through, and, and so on. That's not a biblical faith. That's certainly not the faith that Peter is talking about here. He's not talking about a faith that has no object and is therefore meaningless. It also rules out misguided faith, you know, faith with an object other than Jesus. They're, they're, they're all ruled out by his comments here. The miracle in Jesus' name was meant to encourage faith in Jesus' name. Faith in who he is and what he has done, all of it, and what he continues to do and what he can do. Look at verse 16 again. His name, by faith in his name, as in Belief and trust in his power, authority, and leading. Remember? In his name. Belief and trust in his power, authority, and leading has made this man strong whom you see and know. And then Peter reiterates it. The faith that is through Jesus has given the man this perfect health. Peter and John had faith in speaking Jesus' name, believing God would heal. And the beggar had faith in hearing his name, believing God would heal. All for the purpose of encouraging us to do the same. To believe and trust that God can and will act on our behalf just like he's promised in the scriptures. Things like if you confess your sin, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Belief and faith in the power and authority of God to do such a thing. It's all for the purpose of encouraging faith that God can and will save us, can and will keep us, can and will provide for us, protect us, bless us. Oh, maybe not in our way, in our time, but certainly in his way, in his time, which is always best because his ways are always higher than ours. But it's all through faith. It's all through belief and trust in the name of Jesus. How about it? Who or what do you trust? The miracle is meant to encourage faith in Jesus. Who or what do you trust? In whom or in what do you put your faith? I mean, is it Jesus? Is it, is it God's way according to the Bible? Or your way according to the world? Man, I hope it's the former. I hope it's Jesus because he makes all the difference. All the difference in what we experience in the course of our life and all the difference in our lives, all the difference in the world. Put your faith in him 
and in Him alone. More and more. It's one of the things I pray for our church all the time. Oh God, more faith. Give us more faith. More prayer, Lord. More discipleship. More love. More fellowship. Yes, yes, and yes. But God, more faith. Because without faith, it is impossible to please God, the Bible says. Impossible. That brings us to the last point, starting in verse 17. You follow along. And now, brothers, I know that you acted in ignorance. He continues to say it like it is. As did also your rulers when they, you know, rejected and, and killed Jesus. That's what he's referring to. I know you acted in ignorance, and so did they. But what God foretold by the mouth of all the prophets, that his Christ would suffer, think Isaiah 53, he thus fulfilled. What God foretold through the prophets, he thus fulfilled. In other words, what you did, Peter is saying, what you did in hate and ignorance was God's ordained plan. His plan to die for such sin of hate and ignorance. You fulfilled it, Peter said. Repent, therefore, and turn back that your sins may be blotted out, that times of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, and that he may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus, whom heaven must receive until the time for restoring all the things about which God spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets long ago. It's a time that we continue to wait for, don't we? For his second coming. Heaven must receive him still there until the appointed time for him to return to fulfill everything, not just the things that have already been fulfilled up to this point, but all of the rest of them as well. And then Peter cites some of those prophets who told those things. Verse 22, Moses said, The Lord God will raise up for you a prophet like me, referring to Jesus, from your brothers. He spoke to the ancient Israelites of old. You shall listen to him and whatever he tells you. And it shall be that every soul who does not listen to that prophet shall be destroyed from the people. And all the prophets who have spoken from Samuel and those who came after him also proclaimed these days. He's trying to convince them that Jesus was the very one that the prophets of old spoke of and thereby removed some of their barriers to belief, some of their doubts, even though they saw this miracle right in front of their eyes done in the name of Jesus by his power under his authority and according to his leading. Even though they saw it, he was still trying to get rid of these doubts, these barriers to belief. I wonder what yours are. He goes on, verse 25, he says, You are the sons of the prophets and of the covenant that God made with your fathers, saying to Abraham, And in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. God, having raised up his servant, sent him to you first to bless you by turning every one of you from your wickedness. In other words, you're in a privileged position, Peter was saying to them. And listen, if they were in a privileged position, we of all people are in a super privileged position. Not only having the record of this, but having the Holy Spirit available to us and having the testimony of the saints down through the centuries having a fellowship of the redeemed. I mean, they didn't even have this. It was just like in its infancy. Not even this. Like you're in a privileged position. Not only 
is Jesus the blessing promised through Abraham, but you have the opportunity to receive him first. It's a massive effort, fourth and last here, to lead them to repentance. The miracle was intended to lead them to repentance. That's the fourth purpose. It, it wasn't meant to be a viral video and get a thousand likes and then to be forgotten, you know, as quick as you scroll to the next one. Nothing like that. It was meant to change their heart. Hear me on this. It was meant to change their heart, to lead them and urge them to repent. Like he says in verse 19, check it out again there. Repent, therefore, and turn back. As in, here's repentance. It, it means have a change of heart about what you did. Ask God to forgive you and turn from what you did. That's the whole idea of, of repentance. It's a change of heart internally. It's a plea for forgiveness to God. And it's a commitment to turn from your sin and sinfulness. And look at the benefits, the reasons that he gives for repentance. First of all, that your sins may be blotted out. Verse 19. Repent so that you can be totally forgiven and your sins be completely erased. Second, second benefit, that times of refreshing may come. Verse 20, due to the very presence of Jesus within us, the, the Holy Spirit of God. I mean, talk about a benefit. If you're like going through life and, and it just seems like you're going from one valley to the next with no peaks in between, like we sang earlier, something's wrong. You well know it. If you feel like you're perpetually in the doldrums of life, man, repentance brings about refresh, refreshment. And not that a walk with Jesus is a bed of roses, that's for sure, but that he will be with you during it all. And then the third benefit that he cites here for repentance, that he may send Jesus, who, as I mentioned, waits in heaven until God's appointed day of return, not wanting any to perish being patient upon patient. Repent to be forgiven, Peter says. Repent to be refreshed. And repent to be rescued. Are you there? Are you there? Are you ready to repent? And do you see your need? Do you see that you and I are the crippled beggar in this Story, desperately in need of a Savior. Do you see it? That's the point. Desperately in need of changing your heart, asking for forgiveness, and committing your life to Christ. Are you there? I hope so. I pray so, because that's where Jesus is found, repentance. That's where refreshment is. That's where mourning turns to joy and, and pride turns to praise. That's where the feet of clay give way to walking and leaping. Repentance is where a life of getting gives way to a life of serving. A life of begging to a life of giving. It's repentance. Let's pray. Listen, if I've been speaking to you, if, if God has your attention and you trust Jesus to save you and keep you,
Now is the time to repent. If he's got your attention, don't turn away. For his sake and yours, don't turn away. Fix your eyes on him. Trust him. And repent. If you want to be forgiven and refreshed, like now is the time to repent. If you need to return to the Lord or, or, or bend the knee and surrender anew, now's the time. The time to express your change of heart. Ask God to forgive you and commit to live for Him. You take a moment and do that in the quietness of your own, own heart, right where you sit. If you need to repent, you get with the Lord. Thank you for your patience with us. Your mercy to withhold the punishment that we deserve, the discipline that we deserve. God, thank you. Thank you for your grace and blessing. Your presence your promises, your attention-getting circumstances, people in our life, good news of the gospel. God, thank you. We exalt you. We praise you. We worship you. And we pray these things in your son, our Savior. Amen. Amen. Let's stand. Let's worship the Lord.